Chip Wilson today, the founder of Lululemon. Thank you very much for joining us today, Chip. Oh, my pleasure, Jamal. So most people probably know you as you know the founder of Lululemon, one of mm -hmm. the most successful apparel brands of our day. Um, but we're here today to talk about something different, which is the organization that you've launched last year, Soul FSHD. Um, and it's, you launched it because you were diagnosed with this rare form of muscular dystrophy a few decades ago. Um, I think a lot of people don't really know much about FSHD, so I thought it could be useful to kind of start with your story of getting diagnosed and how the disease has impacted you. Yeah, I mean, thanks for having me, first off. This is, I mean, whatever you, I can do to get the story out there in order for more people to be you know, recognized, especially when they're young with muscular dystrophy, that would be great. It is a different, there's different forms of muscular dystrophy. I mean, there's Duchenne's or even ALS is, a, is another one. Um, I have FSHD, fascular, scapular muscular. So a lot of people that have mine have no muscles in their face, so they have no expression. So it makes it very difficult, but mostly it hits the scapular muscles in the upper body. Um, when I was young, I was a swimmer, like a, a, probably a world-class swimmer and in butterfly and backstroke, but I could not swim freestyle because I couldn't get my arm out of the water every time I would do it. My, because I had no scapular, my elbow would collapse into the water, but it didn't really mean anything. I didn't think much of it. Um, but when I got to be 32 years old, I had a bad back and I went to the doctor and he stripped me down and he looked at my body and went, I had these massive legs and this kind of spindly upper body. And uh, he went, I think you have something, he did the blood test, et cetera. And so I had muscular dystrophy. So, um, of course, I went into denial about it. You know, I mean, I was physically great. I felt good. My back was really bad. And I guess with uh, vascular, scapular muscular dystrophy, you get a sway back as part of the, the, the diagnosis of it all. So... Yeah, it, so, but, you know, relatively, I had just figured out, you know, okay, well, if I can't swim anymore, then maybe I can, you know, run. So I started becoming a 10K runner, that type of thing. And, and um, then I started hurting a little bit more and my legs became a little unbalanced, but I figured, but I could start going side to side. So I started playing squash and then, Improvised. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then people figured out they could hit the ball over my head and I couldn't reach it because I can only reach to here. Mm -hmm. as I go up. So people figured they could lob the ball and win. So that became not very interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I kept morphing as I kind of go along. And, and now, funny enough, I'm playing tennis and uh, with, a, you know, but I get a coach and I can't hit it so much over my head, but I go side to side. It's, uh, I've been very fortunate because a lot of the indications are, is that um, not only do I have a genetic makeup that's, that's wrong, uh, you know, these repeats of part of that DNA, but I have this thing called methylation and the methylation has to do with inflammation and the way that the um, DNA is expressed. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing is by, they say by athletics is actually represses the uh, methylation. So instead of being in a wheelchair in my teenagers or stumbling around and falling, uh, probably the athletics of my life has probably repressed that, which is why it's, mm. I've been able to grow into, like I'm 68 years old now and still be relatively okay. Although I have every time, every step that I walk, I have to be very conscious of where my foot is going. And I, 
and I can see that in about seven years I'll be in a wheelchair. If and so my goal is I'm going to be I'm in action to do something. And so it's a genetic disorder. Were you aware that it was in your family, or it was news to you when you were? No, it. You know, and I actually at one point had my family tested, mm -hmm. and uh, nobody had it. So they thought it was just a genetic mutation that happened like randomly, which of course happens in in genetics, but. As it's turned down, it, it actually is in my family now that now that yeah. testing's become better and better. Yeah. But um, a couple of my children have it, but they have, but they don't have any any methylation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So consequently, you have to have these two that come together. So yes, they could pass it down, and they really would have to marry. Oh, because I have five boys, they'd have to marry a woman that had kind of the the right genetic structure, which probably happened with my parents, mm -hmm. that would then express that, and that's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. And so tell us about Solve and why you decided yeah. you, you were diagnosed when you were in your 30s. It's been, uh, you know, a few decades since then. And you decided to start Solve last year. Um, is that because of the kind of impending threat of, you know, potentially losing, you know, use of your legs in the near future? <laughs> or I, I, I'm interested in the timing and, and, you know, the thought process behind starting Solve last year. Yeah, a lot of it is getting my head out of the sand. I know there's other analogies I could probably say, but I, I would about ten years ago, um, uh, a partner of, my, of mine, uh, Neil Camarta, he mm -hmm. was the uh, uh, CEO of um, Shell Oil in Canada. He also has it, and his whole family has it, and they have it quite uh, severe. Um, he came to me and he said, "Look, there's this company happening over the ne in the Netherlands, and uh, and we we should probably get involved with it." The Netherlands is interesting because the royal family in Netherlands has it. And so they put they started many years ago putting money and research into it. So Leiden in the Netherlands became kind of the world center for it at the time. We went over and we put money into it. We had a world-class board of directors because, you know, if your family has it, you want to do something with it. So we ended up with, you know, many world-class CEOs on the board. Either they had it or their wives had it or their children. And um, we put maybe $40 million into it over the over maybe about six years, but nothing was happening. And so I, I kind of sat back and I started getting involved with Peter Diamandis and the X Prize. And, you know, he has multiple different ones, you know, to space or with Elon Musk and carbon capture, you know, uh, oil, you know, recovery, that type of thing. And I started looking at this concept and, you know, Putting out a hundred million dollar prize brings every scientist and every thought process in the world towards it. Mm -hmm. I mean, people that aren't even looking at muscular dystrophy but have are maybe doing something in another part of science goes, <clears throat> whatever I'm doing, I can actually like apply it to this. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the thing. Like people come out of the woodwork. So I went, okay, what am I, what can I do to be in action about this? So we kind of got out of <laughs> we put we um, we let Fasio go in the Netherlands, and we decided we were going to solve set up solve FSHD. So Neil and I decided that we were because we are so close in age and the progression of our age and our uh, muscular dystrophy. Like we don't have like twenty years to figure this out. One of the successes I've had in the progression of surf, skate, snowboarding, yoga, and now outerwears, I've been very goal-oriented. So I noticed that when a goal is set, 
I, I make and the people around me make different decisions based on the risk profile, the amount of money put in and the risk to get to the goal by a certain time. Mm -hmm. So our decision was then to make a goal that we were going to solve this FSHD by December 31st, 2027. So what does that happen then is that, is that people know that there's a deadline to do something by and even everybody that's involved in it is coming out of the woodwork is is going, okay, how much money do I need? How many people do I need? What kind of facilities do I need? And what kind of risk am I going to take in order to get this happening by December 31st, 2027? Mm -hmm. So we, instead of now having one company out of the Netherlands doing it, Fasio, there's probably 30 companies mm -hmm. globally that are in one way or another looking at FSHD. And that's what the $100 million has done and the publicity of that. And thanks for helping me out today. Yeah, I, I think something that I found really interesting, I've been you know, speaking to some of these scientists that are working on mm. the potential therapies and hopefully cure, um, is that you know, they had these technologies or they had this research that could have been applied to this a while ago, but because it's a rare disease, there isn't as much economic incentive for drug companies to develop treatments because you know, it doesn't go to as many people. Um, and so you coming in and putting this money on the table frees up people to finally research this. Um, it kind of made me think like how many diseases are there out there, rare diseases where somebody could just come in and put a bunch of cash in, on the table like a billionaire like yourself and the problem is solved. Have you, has it kind of made you think about, you know, the, the justice of drug development and like the economics of it all in terms of like there's mm. a lot of solvable issues just sitting out there. We just don't have the resources. Well, I'm, <clears throat> I think for the big ones, I mean, you can look at cancer or heart disease or that. I mean, I think that's where governments get involved. I mean, they're going to get, if you have to build a highway, the governments are going to get involved to like build a big highway, but they're not going to build, get involved to build a back alley in a prop, piece of property they don't own. That's mm -hmm. in order to have that happen, you have to have private money in. I, I think for... Um, I mean, FSHD is rare, but not so rare mm -hmm. that if a solvent, a drug can easily bring in two to three billion dollars into, into a pharmaceutical um, end. And I think that's what people are seeing. Part of it is us being able to tell the story about how many people there are. But I'm going to tell something I think is kind of interesting is that, you know, when, when, when I was young, there was out on the playground or in phys ed class, there was always the one fumbling kid you know, who, who just was uncoordinated or couldn't run very fast and always got picked last on the teams and that, it could very well be that that child had muscular dystrophy. Mm -hmm. And so how do we then um, uh, work with the health officials in schools and the phys ed teachers to start identifying these people and, and start, you know, having them um, uh, uh, identified? So, because the younger you can almost get anybody in any disease or the sooner they have it, then the easier it is to work with people around, you know, physical fitness, uh, diet has a lot to do with it. I think, you know, mental well-being has a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, that's, that's in part of the aura of saying, okay, we, there's a lot more people than we know of. And that gives a lot of incentive to the pharmaceutical companies in order to have something occur. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, you talked about goal setting and mm -hmm. I have noticed you love to be like, okay, we're going to do this by this date. We're going to do this by this date. You do it with your philanthropy. You've done it with Solve. 
uh, the companies you've built. Um, the scientists that I've been speaking with are, you know, thinking that 2027, a cure by 2027 is, is, a, is a tough timeline, but certainly therapies that will help slow down, you know, the muscle degeneration or help right. regenerate muscles should be um, viable by then. I'm interested in, do you think you're an optimistic goal setter? Do you think you're a realistic goal setter? Do you think you're a shoot for the moon, land on the stars kind of guy? <laughs> like what's your, you know, I'm interested in how, mm -hmm. you know, that reflects your, your approach to business. That's a great question. I think a lot about it. And uh, there's, there's things called smart goals, you know, when in that smart goals is the A is achievable. Um, I actually like to set my goals so I fail about 50% of the time. And I really coach young people to do this a lot because I think that we live in a world now of there used to be helicopter parents. Now there's lawnmower parents and, you know, kids are like, like babied and they don't get to fail. They don't get resilience. They don't learn how to, how to move forward. And so when in my companies, I actually encourage people to fail 50% of the time because even myself, I'd say I'm only successful because I've been I probably make the right decision 70% of the time. Mm -hmm. So, and so I fail. And so what happens when you fail? Well, you just get up and you reset, you refigure it out. What did I need to do to, to make this successful this time and set a new conditions of satisfactions with a new specific by when date to get it done. Makes sense. 50%. That's, yeah. that's a fair percentage rate. Um, and so you're still the largest individual shareholder in Lululemon. That's right. But you've been, busy with a lot of other things yeah. <laughs> since you kind of stepped away from a formal role in the company, including, you know, in the past few years, you invested in Amherst Sports, which owns a bunch of brands, um, Arcteryx and Wilson and many others. Um, you've also been a pretty big real estate investor in Vancouver mm -hmm. and Seattle. Um, and, you know, you have a private equity as well. So I'm interested in you know, since over the past years, since you haven't been active in Lululemon management, what have you found to be your most um, interesting work and what's been, the, you know, mm. what's been the most interesting thing for you <clears throat> and your biggest accomplishment? Uh, so, so I, I've come out of Lululemon because everyone told me to diversify you know, like something bad could happen and mm -hmm. you've know, got too much money in one, one thing. And so I listened to smart people and I did that. Now that's, um, so what things do I want to diversify myself in? Well, as I was selling down Lululemon, I was going, this is the only thing I think about all day long is technical athletic clothing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what a mistake I've made actually selling down and getting out of the company that I know more than anybody else in the world about. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and because I'm an entrepreneur, um, I'm always five years ahead and that doesn't really work with um, a lot of, um, uh, I'd say, <clears throat> accounting corporate type of people, you know, so... I went, okay, well, I need to get myself into something I can control. I'm a, I have to be a believer in what I'm doing. I have to see what the future is, and I have to develop something to live into the future. Mm -hmm. So I was a kid playing Monopoly, when I, and I played for like 10 years. I know every ratio, every rent, every house, every property. I mean, it's just who I was. So it became easier for me to think about going into real estate, and it was fun, and it is fun. Um, and it's a blue chip part of, 
you know, diversification. Mm -hmm. And the good or bad thing about it is I have such great people running it who know way more than I do. And there's a, there's a thousand million nuances to run a great business. And I know them all about technical apparel and I don't know them all about real estate. So I'm proud to say that I'm very, I have people that are running that perfectly and I, and I love them for it. So then what's up with me then? I mean, I, am I ready to retire? No, I mean, because all I do all day long is I look at athletics, I look at bodies, I look at technical apparel, I look at how shoes and apparel can, can en enhance an athlete's life. Or, and now, of course, with all these fabrics and everything that's happening, it's coming into people's day-to-day, -day, just walking to work and being in the office and the antimicrobial, the sweat, that's the stretch, um, the anti-ultraviolet, uh, all these things that kind of come into it are now pervading the natural natural life and I love it. I feel like I'm right in the middle of the biggest change in the way people have dressed in the history of the world mm -hmm. and I and I gotta go so <clears throat> what am I gonna do? So when I got the opportunity to invest alongside a couple incredible partners uh, Anta out of uh, China and Fountain Vest, a private equity firm in Tencent and we bought I think the you know the top five global outdoor brands in the world uh, you know atomic solomon out of france and peak performance out of um, sweden and you already mentioned arcteryx out of vancouver and mm -hmm. my my favorite wilson um <laughs> wilson uh, i'm here for new york for the open tennis and couldn't be more proud of the company and everything that's accomplished it's just so much fun to me and it's just where my brain is mm -hmm. probably 90 percent of the time and so when you're advising, I, I understand that you're, you know, advising these companies and, and helping push them in the right direction. Are you following the Lululemon playbook or how are you catering to, you know, these five different outdoor brands? The Lululemon playbook, it, I believe it's uh, hasn't changed at all mm -hmm. because, I mean, we set it up, I think, perfectly from that book, The E-Myth, about the entrepreneurial myth, about how to set up the structure, the processes and document everything. So when I left Lululemon, it, it was set up just to replicate and that's just, and that's what it's done. So, um, I think the thing for me is, um, if I look back at the history, I, I was in surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding, and now I, you know, Lululemon was the yoga and now the future of really, of what I see apparel is outdoor. And this was put on steroids through COVID. Mm -hmm. So it really helped us out a lot. People got out and that was the way people could do it. So it allowed me to now think about how I can take these outdoor companies that were very male, very engineering, mm -hmm. um, very wholesale, um, not really lovers of people, I would say, because the wholesale business is about letting someone else handle people. Where I love people and I love retail and I love direct to consumer. And I also see the power of women. I mean, it's just no secret that, you know, women are 50-50 in sports, but they buy 70% of, you know, apparel. So I know that. So how can I take these brands and move them out of this men-centric kind of way of thinking and show them the possibility of that? I think the other thing is these brands are uh, very winter, except for Wilson, mm -hmm. but all the other four brands are. And, you know, we want to open up retail stores, but they don't know anything about spring and summer clothing. Mm -hmm. So then a lot of them are driven because they're mountain to, mountain people to go into trail running in the summer. So how do we build an apparel line and 
running shoes for our Tarek, you know, trail running shoes for our Tareks. And Solomon's already the best in the world at that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a store can actually be a 360 store all year round. Because when I was in the, in the snowboard business, what I learned is that that's complementary to the skateboard surfing part. So you can actually make e-commerce, logistics, warehousing, retail stores, hiring of people, training them, giving them a full year job. Mm -hmm. But if you have a business that's going up and down like that, it's impossible. So I'm taking all those things that I've learned from my company, West Beach, and then Lululemon, and then applying them to this. Correct. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> and I'm interested, you said you see the future trend trending towards outdoor. Yes. Um, you know, you accurately predicted the yoga trend. So I think people put a lot of stock in your predictions. Mm. Can you kind of expand on what you mean by like what you envision as this like trending towards outdoor? Well, if I if I look at what happened in surf, skate and snowboarding, um, what happened in those sports is that real athletes did them, but then there was a natural way of those that all that clothing pervaded itself into the natural social structure outside of the sport. So people in California would go surfing and then they would have their tech business and why should I move into a suit and tie? I'll wear my hoodie and sweats because I'm cold from the ocean or I'm going right in the ocean. I can't have it. You can't spend the time putting on suit and ties. There's just no time in athletics for that. So um, it was the same for, for skateboarding and, and, and snowboarding. So, but what I failed at was uh, beach volleyball. No one wanted to look like a beach volleyball player going to work and back. And Shocking. nobody, wanted, nobody <laughs> wanted to look like a... Um, um, a mountain biker, quite mm -hmm. frankly, I tried that and failed at that. That's kind of comes back to failing, you know, often. So, um, when I started to look at yoga, I mean, I went, okay, this is the same playbook I've seen in surf skate snowboarding. So that's there. Um, and, and it ended up being a lot bigger than I thought it was, but I just, I just figured out woman I, as a, I think from a, athletic apparel point of view before anybody else so that I think that was my my niche there now with outdoor what's interesting to me is that people not only want to be outdoors and they want to be in the sports I think there's because underlying all brands that I'm involved with is not just the sport it's like it adds to longevity I think it adds to you know uh healthy relationships, a healthy mind, reproduction. Because mm -hmm. I, I personally come from, I think everyone wants a white picket fence and a nice marriage and a couple of kids. I think that's the end of it. And they want to live to like 89 to 120 years old, which is very capable, we're capable of now. So I think all my brands are driven that way and I could see outdoors, um, you know, the, the air, the trees, the uh, community that people live in, because we all, I mean, every statistic from longevity would say that having friends and community is, is, is actually almost more important than diet, even more important mm -hmm. than, than if you drink alcohol or, or cigarettes. You know, having friends that will actually loan you money if you're in trouble could mm -hmm. be the number one statistic of what, how long you're going to live. Well, I have to say it is smart attaching your branding mm. to longevity and happiness yeah. and joy. I mean, yeah. those are things that 
everybody wants. So, what a great um, way to live, too. <laughs> yeah, I certainly. Um, I wanted to ask about Lululemon. I mean, it's sure. it's come a long way from from you know when you started it in the 1990s. It's now an empire. Yeah. Um, and it just keeps growing and growing. And you know, you know the business better than anyone else, as you said. Um, and you haven't been afraid to be both a critic and a huge cheerleader for Lululemon over mm -hmm. the years. I'm interested, you know, it came out really well from the pandemic and is now bucking the retail trend that's you know, mm -hmm. taking many down. Um, what do you think are Lululemon's biggest opportunities and challenges uh, in the current day? Well, you can tell by the way it bought Mir for like 500 million, and then probably by the time they got out of it, it probably cost them 800 million. And so it tells me that they don't really understand the business. The, the, um, I, I have stayed away from technical. You can see it's really failed for Nike and Under Armour for sure. I mean, it's, it, and it runs it counter to the core um, way that the business is set up to sell in the store and sell online. Um, they would have been much better off buying a company, I would say, called Figs, um, which is a technical uh, hospital scrubs that was fashionable and then made technical. I think that would have been a, a great purchase. Um, so now they're, uh, they're $800 million down. So, um, so that, that's the kind of thinking that I think you've got probably a board now that's old, doesn't really understand it. They, when they bought Mir, they, it took them about a year to fire the founder of that who was kind of coming in. So it tells me that the board, the biggest risk is the board doesn't have the ability to work with people that probably are thinking five to 10 years out in the future. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. The second thing is that, um, do they really understand the product? They have a couple of people there. I mean, I th I'd call Glenn Murphy, probably, who um, was the CEO of The Gap, who's brought every bad thought about how The Gap runs to Lou Lemon. Mm -hmm. So you have, and then you have people from Shoppers in Canada, which is a kind of a CVS drugstore type of thing. And you're kind of bringing that mentality to something where Lou Lemon was built up to be an anti-Gap type of thing like mm -hmm. so it was technical and it was uh, um, changing its styling every year uh, moving forward and thinking about functional fabrics and how that enhances the people's lives not from a let's do an advertising campaign and make mm -hmm. people think they're happy but let's actually make a product that makes people like phenomenal in every part of their life and so I think that that's the biggest risk that Lululemon has <clears throat> they don't know how to work with with futurists. Do you think they've veered too much into fashion then, as opposed to putting yeah, in a sport? Correct. Cost? Correct. So if you look at about thirty percent of their men's stuff, it's to me, it's like it's appalling. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like what they're you know they're making like even dress shirts that have no uh, no style to them, but they're just making a dress shirt to put it in there. I'm sure they get the fabric for two dollars a meter. They make it, and so they, and it's in the Lululemon store. So people are buying, you know, because they think it's technical. They're buying it and mm -hmm. and wearing it, but it's not. Um, uh, but what's happening is they have the margin on it is so huge that the merchandisers and the and everyone's getting bonus on on the profit and the margins of a bad a bad 
it's called streetwear fashion product, mm -hmm. which is only selling at a high price because of the Lululemon technical product, yeah. that it's that ends up being what I call bad profits. Mm -hmm. Bad profits in a company like that lead to the gap and eventually you, you know, you can see it, Lululemon's making more and more streetwear and less and less technical wear. It ends up shipping away at the brand. Right. And then biggest opportunities, I guess, is the next. Well, to, to, for Lululemon to have a big opportunity, they would have to risk. And I, and I think that they would have to become a brand to people that people want. Mm -hmm. I think through this whole diversity and inclusion thing that they have become, trying to become like the gap, everything to everybody. And I think just the definition of a brand is that you're not everything to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll give you an example. When I opened my first um, surf skate store, um, I wouldn't allow people, and this is in 1980, I wouldn't allow people in my store who smoked. I mm -hmm. actually didn't want customers who smoked. I didn't want customers who bought my product who smoked to be, I didn't want that connection to happen at all. So I was very so, and these people would leave saying, I'm going to tell everyone not to sell, to, not to buy in your store. I'm going to like, I'm going to go to the, the, you know, the city council. I'm going to go to the government. I mean, we're going to shut you down. I mean, these are lawyers and people like that. And, and I thought it was so funny um, because what happened is that the people that were anti-smokers and very healthy, then they came into my West Beach store mm -hmm. in droves. So I learned something from that. And when I started Lululemon, my very first manifesto line on, which is what used to be on the bag. Mm -hmm. And this is 1998, so you got to take it in context, but it was Coke and Pepsi are the tobacco of the future, great marketing, terrible product. Mm -hmm. So what did I learn from West Beach? I learned that who I don't want, I don't want people that are drinking Coke and Pepsi, because uh, I could see the the obesity epidemic happening in the U.S. even in 1995. Mm -hmm. And you could see people drinking sugar and this, and this thing about Coke and Pepsi, like we're the healthy drink type of thing. You know, it's just like the tobacco companies, you know, back in Mad Men, the, the series that came out and, and it appalled me, appalled me. So it, I didn't want people who were... Um, wearing the Lululemon brand who were drinking Coke and Pepsi or eating McDonald's or because you know the fast food industry was all part of that at the time. So what I'm really getting at there is that <clears throat> Lululemon has the opportunity to become a brand but in order to become a brand you've got to be clear that you don't want certain customers coming in mm -hmm. and right now I think through the um, they're fearful they run out instead of they living out a possibility they live out of the fear of media backlash, of not not including everybody. And it's just something I don't agree with. And so what do you think would be the consequence of that? Well, of, of that, I think that they would, they would become a brand that nobody else could compete against. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's so many, I see brands coming out to compete against Lululemon that have healthy people in their ads. They don't, I mean, so as opposed to having people that look very unhealthy to me in, in, on e-commerce, like the men look sickly, the men, the women are looking like, a, I, I don't, I don't know what they're, they're not inspirational in any kind of case like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that they have the opportunity to, to like, 
move into the health, fitness, longevity, fun space where mm -hmm. Lululemon was meant to be. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us. It was great talking to you, Jeff. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>